and welcome to Inclusion Europe Radio. Ambitions. Right. Belonging. Well, today we will talk about the book Narrowed Lives, Meaning, More Value and Profound Intellectual Disability. This book was published in 2021 by Stockholm University Press. Narrowed Lives is a book about what life is like in Finnish group homes where adults who have profound intellectual and multiple disabilities live. It is a book based on a lot of interviews and observations, and the authors spent a lot of time with the people the book is about. I find the book very, very interesting and also very much needed for a lot of people to read. So I was very keen to talk to his others. Okay, yeah, I'm Reetta Mietola and I'm currently working at the University of Helsinki as a senior research fellow. And currently my research is uh, focusing on disability activism in Finland and, and also political participation of young people. Ended up working uh, on this book and in this project because Simo asked me, but I, before I came to this project, I was working on my PhD, which is an ethnography on special needs education. So I had done ethnographic research before and, uh, and I had also been working in, on inquiry done for a Finnish Ministry of Environment. And the inquiry was about housing solutions for people with intellectual disabilities. So it was basically about deinstitutionalization in Finland and, and what kind of housing solutions should, should sort of replace the, the old institutions. I work in, as a professor of special education at, at Stockholm University. And also I am uh, visiting professor in, in Lillehammer in Norway. And my background is in is in various philosophical and ethical issues related to disability. So I I've been mostly doing theoretical research on disability and especially intellectual disability because I, and originally what motivated me to become an I suppose an academic within disability research was was when looking at disability issues from in the light of philosophical literature, I, I felt the kind of a need to engage with those various issues, especially from the ethics side of it. People with intellectual disabilities are represented as marginal human beings in, in various philosophical and ethical theories. And that kind of in, in, the, in the beginning, some 20, 25 years ago, motivated me to start doing research. Just Last question on introducing the book, Reta. Who should who should read it? Who's the book for? We basically wrote it for, firstly for academics, of course. There's there's so little uh, research done done this way. Take the, in a way that 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 the researchers actually go and and follow the lives of 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 people with profound intellectual disabilities and try to kind of make sense of who they are and what their life is all about. So, so we thought that that already making an kind of academic sort of statement or take part in that that academic discussion that that would be important. But but of course we think that that everyone should read it. <laughs> and definitely one group that that we would like to like to read this is people who make decisions on where people live and, and about resources, how how different kinds of services are organized, which are highly political questions. We did 
pay an extra attention to the way we wrote the book, that, that we try to make it as accessible as possible. I mean, even though some of the questions that we discuss, some of the some of the philosophical stuff, they, they are complicated issues. And so therefore it is difficult to, to discuss those issues without certain degree uh, of technicality. But we try to avoid that as much as possible to make it, you know, uh, as readable as possible, uh, as readable as we could <laughs> write it. We don't expect everybody uh, to read it. And, and, and because there are just so many books and so many texts to read, so people, of course, have, have to prioritize. But it, it is the kind of book that there aren't too many texts like this around. I mean, the way that it engages with the everyday lives of people with int profound intellectual disability and the, and the various complicated practical issues that are very much that are ethical what kinds of life what kinds of life they should be entitled to live and what kind of things they should have access to and what are the ethical complications related uh, that kind of stuff is is rarely represented so th that's why i think it's it, it is there are good reasons to at least give it a shot the, the book. i hope that this uh conversation will help spread the word and then convince some people to have a look at the book. The uh, One of the advantages being that it's uh, free to download from Stockholm University Press. So there is not this kind of barrier. I would also say from my view of it, I, I find it really interestingly written, not only in the subject matter, but also as a easy to understand and it's not so complicated some books of academic nature tend to be so it's definitely something that is uh, quite accessible definitely so let's let's get on to when people do get to, to read the book it is based on following the observing following the lives of people with profound intellectual disabilities can you can you talk a little bit about who these people are what do you learn from the book? What are your main points that you make in the book, essentially? First of all, there are various empirical. I think so the book can be seen in terms of two main threads. One of the thread is, of course, the empirical findings. And the other ones are related various theoretical issues that are related to practice. And I, I suppose the one of the most kind of staggering and unsurprising at the same time, I mean, the finding was that that very little happens in in the lives of these people. That they are kind of a, a stagnation is is the word I suppose that you could use about to describe. They are waiting to be fed. They're waiting to be washed and to be transported to a day center or so on. But then, but there's a lot of waiting. It's like in the army when when those of us who would be in the army or or making a film or something like that where there's a, where there's a lot of waiting. So I, I think that can be said about the empirical finding. But then in terms of the, the theoretical findings, kind of related to humanity and what is the humanity, what does human life and a good human life mean for people with very limited cognitive and communicative capacities? What does it mean or, or what competence mean for them and what kinds of limitations it can be set uh, upon their lives and whether they should have right to explore, for instance, sexuality, 
what does it mean that, to be an adult w with a profound intellectual disability? And whether, whether, the, the, whether it's wrong or right? I think what you, when you were not describing that, I, I was just reminded of some of the elements in the, in the book that, that struck me, some of the formulations or the thoughts that you expressed there. It's basically you are describing the waiting or, or and it's, there's a lack of ambition say at some point is could also be used to describe for how how the lives of people with profound disabilities are also say they are the least to last and least to benefit from changes in policy in culture and in social services delivery and i think this could be summed up by an example that reta could talk about i believe and it's with the the woman Frida, if I recall correctly, and and the observations of her as a social in, in her social roles and in her interactions with her father and mother and how you describe that we find here. And that is very relevant because one of the elements that, that is associated to what you were just talking about is basically reducing people with profound disabilities to some extent basically lacking any capacity to have social relations, to mm -hmm. be able to have social interactions. And I think this is a very important point in the book. And as I said, with, with the example of Frida, I think this serves as a good model to describe it. So if you can talk about that a little bit, Greta. Yeah, well, you were asking earlier, like, who were, they, who, who were these people and, and what was the main finding? So if, if we... Simo was talking about starting from the negative findings. I think if we start from who they are, I think what was more most striking for me was that that these were like people with 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 some had really wicked sense of humor. Some were like super social and super loving, and 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 people who were able to express lots of different kinds of things and and wishes and their their preferences. And so so what what was kind of for one key point for me was that this is not about impairments. It's it's just not about impairments. It's, the problem isn't that that these people are so have such massive impairments that nobody is able to understand them. And and in every single place that we were doing our research in, there were some care workers, and it's in some places many who were really skillful at, at understanding who, who these people were, their different kinds of personalities and, and, and their preferences, and also see change in, in these people, like Frida. A good example is that when we were doing interview with Frida, Frida's mom and dad, we were sitting in Frida's room, and I, I took my, I had a small digital recorder. I took it out and had it in my hand. Frida thought it was a phone, and she, she, she had learned how to talk on the phone. She understood the concept of a mobile phone and she was like super super excited about the idea that, that we are all all four of us are talking into this device and 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 she was super lively through through the whole whole interview more than an hour at least and and if you think about the kind of um, that there's a lot of this kind of thinking that these people cannot do this and that that they don't have capacity and i would say that our Findings were totally opposite that 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 they actually do, and uh, the question is then how much that that is a more problematic question. But also that there there are that the professional are able to 
make sense of, of who they are. And there are these sort of building blocks for a better life for them. But then we come to the, the question of the service system and whether there's enough resources, whether it is a priority to actually uh, make sense of who these people are and try to respond to their personal interests and, and preferences. And that is like where, where we turn the page to what Simo was just saying, that they are kind of in a waiting room. Again, leads us back to, as you said, what, what Simo was describing in more of the, let's say, the societal or the kind of the stereotypes and the, the prejudices and the thinking about people with um, profound disabilities and how that influences, because that's basically what underlines the the decisions on whether there are or aren't enough resources to provide the services, as as you were just saying. And I guess, obviously, from from the evidence of what you are describing, we can mostly conclude that societies decide that basically these people are not worth the investment, right? Because it's like, uh, why would we put money into them? They cannot communicate, they cannot do this, they cannot do that. And basically your book, in my view, would be to a large extent a polemic, an argument with, with this main point and just painting the, the picture of people with profound disabilities as being actually human and having the social relations part like every human being does. Or age and aging and developing. That's an interesting opportunity to go back maybe a little to how these things were developing in, in Finland, just talking about applied to people with intellectual disabilities in general, treated as with segregation. Say at some point in the book, you say that it's a history of segregation, cruelty and, and downright brutality. And But also there was a change at some point in the 20th century and uh, more of a recognition of the human rights perspective, let's say, resulting then in the institutionalization, provision of more suitable living conditions and more suitable approach to care. If we leave aside for a moment the aspect that this didn't apply so much to people with profound disability, what what do you think was the reason that this came about, this, this, this important change? in how people with intellectual disabilities were treated and how the services were done. What was the main motivating factor for the positive change? When, when we look at the past, it is, it is true that they are, they, it's filled with a lot of unpleasant things. But, but it, it is important at the same time to remember that not all people at the time were horrible, meaning that they didn't intentionally mean to be cruel to disabled people. It's just the practices reflected the current views and current values. So it was believed that it was good for disabled people to be placed in an institution, especially with complex needs. And it was believed that, you know, 100 years ago or so that, that you know, institution represented progress. And, that, and that's why it took such a long time to to get rid of these institutions because so many people were convinced that they were good, that they were good for for the people, the disabled people themselves, they were good for their families and society. 
and it, it took a lot of, uh, let's say, persu persuasion from from parents, from various active professionals. So uh, the, the the progress in in various institutional arrangements around disability has been based upon few very active individuals. It could be some academics, it could be some clinicians and parental organizations have been very, very important. But also it is related to the common changes in society, in Western culture. So it was the first half of the 20th century, disability services were based on a kind of a society's needs and society set the criteria for for humanity and what would be for the aims of disability care and so on. But it, it was in, a, in the second half of the 20th century and this mirrored the, the, the general changes in, in society that there was, as you mentioned, more focus on, on individual rights, on, on individual human rights. And that kind of revolutionized, of course, disability care because the goal was not to achieve some standard set by professionals or by a culture. The, the starting point should be the individual, what was good for him or her, what he or she might want to make out of his or life, and what she or he might want to achieve. With people with complex support needs, we see that being less applied to them, essentially, right? Like it is these advances and in both thinking and then in practice and providing support services, they don't apply to people with complex support needs. We, we can see that not only from what, what you were describing uh, in the book, but in like with our own eyes when we observe uh, services around Europe, we can see it also in, in the recent report done for the expert group on the institutionalization of the European Union, which states clearly that people with complex support needs are, are left behind from, from the, the institutionalization efforts across Europe. How does this demonstrate in, in practice or when, when you did the observations, Reta, like how do you, and there is one point in the book, I think when you discuss kind of the disbalance between the expectations of what services should look like and what they really look like in reality and how much the care providers are aware of this, how much of an issue this is. Well, if I, if I can start from the inquiry that I was doing, the experience from the inquiry that I was doing for the, the, for the Ministry of Environment about housing solutions, because it was interesting because I had been in these tables with, with, with people from different ministries and trying to think about uh, different experts thinking about different kinds of housing solutions. And, and, and uh, like a couple of years before we started this, the, doing this research and, and from those discussions, what I remember is that, that people with profound needs were discussed as kind of, it was such an abstract group. They were kind of like discussed as, okay, those people who have lots of uh, different kinds of devices, like support, assistive technical, devices assistive design, yeah, yes. yeah. Assistive devices. So, so that they would need extra space in their housing units and stuff. But they were kind of like, I always had this feeling that nobody really knew who they were talking about, that we actually, that this, this is still such a hidden group. 
that people who are kind of developing these policies and trying to figure out a better life for people and talking about individualization, they absolutely have no, often don't have any idea who they are talking about when they are talking about people with profound needs. And, and this was also something that was coming up when we were doing this research, that the professionals were talking about like how they, they had been working for years and years in the services, and then they ended up going to work in this group home or, or this day center. And this was the first time they met these, these persons with, with these kinds of needs and suddenly realized that they had absolutely no idea what would work with them. For example, in day services, that most of the kind of activities you would do with, with people in day activity center, that they were kind of expecting a lot more sort of capacity. So people who had been working with this group for a long time were saying that at first they had to sort of develop everything themselves, that there wasn't any sort of ready material to work with, that they had to start thinking about like, that, okay, what, what would the, what would this person like, uh, what would be accessible thing to do with the, this person? What, what would uh, make them happy and, 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 and benefit their lives? But these people are still so hidden and, and we kind of talk about a lot smaller group than what, like, for example, people with milder intellectual disabilities would be, that they actually are a rare case to, to bump into, but also because, well, as you said, that they have been left like last in the deinstitutionalization process. So they are actually hidden from our, our views. Yeah, I think that's an interesting uh, addition to this conversation that people uh, with complex support needs are kind of left behind and then say in the resources for services or the general thinking on these things. But also what you are talking about is, is that they are left behind in, in the methodology of doing things, right? There's an interesting note on that as well that, you, that you're making and you've referred on a couple of occasions now to the staff in the services uh, figuring out how to communicate to the people they, they work with, how to kind of learn what they like, what they don't like, what they prefer, what their personalities are. I think if I remember correctly, at some point you make the you make the point that for services, the challenge in this is not so much kind of generating the knowledge as much as applying it in practice. From the point of view of, of the staff working in the support services, they can figure out with observations, with whatever else, what people want, need, but it's more of a challenge of actually making it uh, happen in, in real life. In one chapter, we are write, writing about kind of knowledge in particular, and one key question is what is the knowledge that is important knowledge? And if in, in those like group homes that we were in, there were lots of time uh, put into writing about like bowel movements and what people had been eating and how they had been sleeping, but not so much about how they communicate, what are their favorite activities, when were they actually able to do their favorite activities and so on. So this kind of knowledge that, uh, that we consider is key to a good life. That wasn't sort of 
transmitted to other care workers. That wasn't sort of the the knowledge that that was sort of work with every day. And this, of course, means that in Finland, there's lots of discussion on like um, now that there's this like move move to deinstitutionalizations, the group homes are hiring lots of people who have a social worker type of sort of uh, training rather than nurse training, but still like if we think about like what was done with the people that we that participated in our study it was more about like the nursing nurse skills that were in use rather than than skills or thinking around like how to put disability rights into action in everyday lives you spent also a lot of time talking to the staff of of these services right and then asking them questions about the, the people they support and about the work they are doing. Do you do you find that there are some elements of these conversations that help particularly help them understand the point you are making to help them realize that perhaps they need to shift the focus of of what they are trying to to deal the in, in the way that they are helping supporting these people moving from as you said the bovemo movements to social relations and this kind of perspective we write in the book that every many of the things that we discuss are already discussed there in the field so there are lots of critical but we had lots of wouldn't even call them discussions because the the people who who are working in these places were talking critically about like these sort of priorities and and how how these people were not living the kind of life that thought that everyone deserves so the criticism is there but also if we talk about power singular care workers don't have that that much power we're talking about culture in these places we're talking about resources we're talking about management and and right now in finland we have a strike going on <laughs> nurses are in strike because because these jobs are like really lousily paid, lots of responsibility, really lousy salaries. And it's not only about salaries, it's, it's about like a lack of resources and how people are leaving the trade because they cannot work according to their values because there's not enough staff, there's not enough resources and the priorities are totally wrong. Maybe then we can move on to another point that you, that you make there, I think describes to me nicely the bigger picture of this or the, the problem that we are talking here about is that how socially isolated the people actually are even though they are constantly surrounded by someone right uh, there are people in <laughs> next to them the staff uh, some others residents in their services but the person themselves they are actually socially isolated as you as you say in the book and i think that's an, another important and quite illustrative point so maybe simo if you can expand on that a little bit there are a couple of issues here or perhaps reasons why their lives are so socially isolated I, and i suppose it, it it can probably i haven't really looked into the literature on on care homes for older people but i should imagine that it might apply there as well especially in in the case of people with dementia but i mean one of one of the things is disability policy that kind of expects social social lives to take place outside disability services so in in 
regular on the streets in in shopping malls and so on but the problem is of course that this group of people they really don't move outside that their lives takes place almost exclusively within disability services either in group homes or in day centers so they don't get to hang out as it were with people outside those services and 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 disability policy says very little about enhancing the social lives within within group homes for instance and of course one thing is is the is the care culture in in many group homes that the it is not just in on enhancing or improving social lives is not just very is not on the top of the, their priority list or it doesn't exist there at all so it is that the and that is partly maybe due to care culture but also limited resources that they are uh, care workers <clears throat> and the care work is focused so much upon just basic care of of, of of feeding and washing and so on so that social life is not like a main concern one of the things that was uh, striking for me and this goes all again back to the inquiry i was doing on housing solutions because in Finland their office that that because we have this program for the institutionalization well actually it's probably now ended but we had it like last decade that was going on and and one part of the program was that we were giving out government money to build new group homes and then I was sitting in these these meetings and I was also reading the plans of these like funding funding applications for these new group homes and one of the things that, that you were able to get different level of funding according to the needs of the people. So, so highest, you would get 50% out of all building costs from the government if you were building a group home for people with, with a very profound need. Because it was kind of thought that they would need more space and special equipments and stuff and so on. But what was kind of striking for me was that when we, in this project, we went when and did some some field work in some of these kinds of groups homes that were built with this money for this group. So when you're in a group home that only has people who don't talk, none of the residents have spoken language. Everyone's got kind of very sort of essential needs, needs help with everything. There's not much sort of like uh, regular life going on there. There's no conversation. All the talk that is in, are in the, those homes, and we would call them homes, is talk made by the people working there. All the initiatives made in those groups, group homes would be from the staff members. If we think about like what, how we think about home life, like uh, what, what is going on in our homes, if we're not living alone, it's like lots of uh, conversation and people coming and going and doing different kinds of things. And none of that was present in the places where all of the residents were had profound uh, need. That was something I didn't realize when I was reading these plans, sitting in this meeting. I just realized it when I was there and, and understood that this is not what we were trying to do with the with the money and and the whole sort of the and I would even wouldn't even call it the institutionalizations because it just it was just trans institutionalization it was just institutional living in a bit smaller space so if you're living in a group home there are x number of staff members and then they they sort of work with everyone and and of course if people have uh, big needs then 
there's less time for other stuff. That was another element I was just going to to bring up. Basically, a lot of these programs or services are provided on the basis of some imaginary average person sort of diagno diagnosis. I think that was just the example of what you described with that silent house there. But also then the other element of that is is the group nature of things. Yeah, that is exactly the point of it. It wouldn't be such a big problem if if there were more resources. And what we saw in one of the group homes where there were very sort of varied group of people living there. So some had only a very mild intellectual disability. And then there was who we call Ella in the other end of the, the sort of spectrum. So she, she, she had a profound intellectual disability. But some of the some of the some of the residents were able to do things by themselves. And also because, well, because the whole sort of ways that things were done were adjusted to meet only the needs of people with profound sort of intellectual disabilities. Then I think it was sort of, it, it, it resembled a lot normal, lively, sort of everyday life, what was happening in the group home. But also because they, everyone wasn't needing help with everything, the care workers were able to give more time to Ella. And, but also they had sort of decided that they would make sure that Ella also gets private time with the care workers and that they just have these moments and that they focus only on Ella and also that they would just just take time and do something somewhere else with Ella so that so that it would be fair because because of course those people with milder impairments would make everyone to understand what they want in a different so so with, for example with Ella you had you needed also time and sort of resources just to figure out what 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 is it that Ella would want and 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 in the hassle of of the everyday life in the group home to just to focus and see how she's doing and and whether now would be the time that we would just just do something with Ella it's not the problem isn't just a group group system, but it is sort of combination of it all, how things are organized, what kind of resources there are. And, it, and it's also, you know, when a group of people are treated as a group, they are more manageable and, and, and the work is, is then more manageable, <laughs> you know, it's easier to manage. And, and it is too often it's up to individual care workers to kind of challenge that culture and start really working with individuals as individuals. And we tried to avoid like, you know, blaming, we didn't want to blame the care workers, individual care workers, like, because like Greta said, their chances to kind of challenge the conventions of the care culture are limited. Group homes are different, care workers are different. Some are very much committed and very motivated, but, there, but it is a common problem, I, I think, in care work in general. Like when Retta referred to the uh, the strike in in Finland, that the working conditions are not great, and it doesn't seem, especially to young people, like a great career to 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 be working with this kind with these kinds of people. So it is often kind of for for some people it is kind of a okay I work there for a while and then I move on for something more meaningful something where the working conditions are better, where the salary is better, where, the, you, where my work is more appreciated and where it seems like 
uh, more meaningful as well. And 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 when when the care worker when when there are care workers who are not motivated really, they don't really take the time and patience to find out who is the individual. And when when you don't do that, then you may just be fooled to just see the impairments, as it were. You don't see, like some of the care workers say, you don't take the time to see behind the impairment, as it were, the individual. And if you don't see individual, that surely affects the work, your work, and how you how you work with these people or how you how you treat them. And, and basically, the whole framing here, what we are talking about, is is not about individual care workers, as you say. It's about the general conditions in society and how how society thinks, treats, conceives people with profound intellectual disabilities and based on that how society decides these people are worthy or not worthy of investment and and then it translates to also the conditions for the people themselves and and also for the workers and with that in mind I have all the lessons as a sort of closing question on this conversation I would like to ask you both and also in, in targeting, as, as we said before, not the individual care worker, but more of the people who make decisions about the system of services. What would be your key lesson from the work you've done described in the book? One key lesson, key recommendation that you think people should take away from this? So difficult. What I think is one of the central aims of this book is to try to challenge the people to confront their own prejudices their own thinking and to kind of force them to kind of engage with some very difficult complicated and even unpleasant issues such as sexuality or, or moral worth moral status or competence for instance what, what do I really, what do I actually think about it and why I actually think about it? That is something I, I, I feel is important and, and I hope Brooke manages to hopefully manage to motivate people to have that kind of discussions and, and reflections. Also, it is aimed for disability scholars, dis researchers in, within uh, disability studies and disability research is to engage more with the, with the lives of people who are who have more complex needs because disability studies has traditionally been concentrate on on various societal barriers that create problems for disabled people and it's being kind of often argued that well disabled people would be able to live pretty much normal lives as it, all the lives like the rest of us if they were just given the chance to do so well this is this group of people of course troubles you know complicates that and, and complicates the various conventions within disability studies, where the uh, problem is located more on society rather than individuals. And we don't want to question that, but we want to bring kind of a, that the discussion should be and would be more balanced uh, and nuanced if there was more engaged with the lives of people uh, like people with profound intellectual multiple disabilities. Because, I mean, it's important to point out the many things that people with profound intellectual disability can do because it is often assumed like ignorant philosophers that they can't do anything at all 
it is important to point out that they can do, but it's also important to engage with the lives of people who cannot do much or who cannot do much at all without help, without the help of other people. And that and 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 because I think that challenges our many ethical and political convictions, and and uh, and I think it would force us to kind of see beyond our politically correct platitudes of, of equal worth of all human beings. One thing to take to from policy point of view, one from the practice point of view, and from the policy point of view, I think now that. In Finland, kind of, we have undergone deinstitutionalization, kind of. So we had this program, and 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 there are still people living in those institutions, but um, but that is the number is going down. I think what is important to keep in mind is that this is just one point, one 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 moment in history, and we cannot just sit still and think that okay, we've done it, that everything is okay that we actually have to challenge ourselves and 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 the system to think like uh, what is the next step where where do we want to be and to acknowledge that there are differences between different groups and different in- individuals that there needs to be this sort of constant progress constant development work going on i i also what i want to point out was that many of the family members that we talked to were kind of wanting to stress that things are better than what they were before. Many were really relieved that they their uh, their loved ones had moved out of the old institutions and had their own little homes, like, like uh, Frida's dad said. But still, that there needs to be, like, the, the, the whole system needs needs to be challenged to think. And, and from the point of view of the services, I think, the, this whole sort of thinking, thinking more, challenging yourself is is also a very keen idea, and and also sort of even if it is really difficult to put into practice these sort of very sort of uh, maybe even abstract policy commitments like individualization or or self determination, and to actually think what what they can mean with this group, this has to be done. Otherwise, it, it is they are just words and not not actually sort of they don't mean anything to the people. And one way that this can be done is to think individually with every single one. What 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 does self determination mean with Ella? What does self determination mean with Olga? And so on. Well, thank you very much. This was uh, Simo Vemas and Reta Meto, authors of. Narrowed Lives, a book about people with profound intellectual disabilities who live in a Finnish group homes, a book that I really recommend uh, for people who are interested in a subject to to read. You can down find it and download it from the Stockholm University Press website. Thank you, Simon and Reta. I hope you, you found the conversation interesting thank you very much thank you thank you for listening i hope you liked this conversation and found it interesting you can listen to more episodes like this one just search for inclusion europe radio on spotify applecast or whatever you listen to your podcast and of course subscribe to inclusion europe radio 
so you don't miss any episodes. Inclusion Europe work is supported by the European Union. If you have any feedback or questions on this episode, please let us know on social media. Stay tuned for the next podcast.